0: So speaking of the Word of God, I mean, depending on how you count them, there are between 200 and 300 questions Jesus asked in all of the four Gospels. Now, many of these are multiple occurrences taking into account the four Gospels, but the number should still be impressive to us. And all of these are different types of questions. They're open, they are reflective, they are decisive, responsive, coercive type questions, and depending on who you ask, or if you read the scriptures, if you look at it, it seems that Jesus only answers three of them. Out of the two to three hundred questions, Jesus only answers three of his own questions. Now, this forced me this week, and as I hope it forces us, to pause and to think about our own interactivity with this idea. We turn to the scriptures often looking for answers. Or rarely do we go to the Bible looking for what Jesus will ask, what Jesus will ask. So I bring all this up because there is a question that I read and reread and reread and reread and reread, and re-read recently, and it has completely slayed me, collective church. A man who is in great need approaches Jesus and says this in Mark ten fifty one. What do you want me to do for you? You hear that? Jesus looks at a person and says, what do you want? What do you want? Is there any better question to be asked in the entire world than what do you want? I love this question. Sure, it's common, but if you stop to really think about it, it's special. It's very special. And depending on who was asking it, it takes on richer significance, right? Meaning if a toddler were to walk in this room right now with its diaper on or whatever and say, Casey, what do you want? I'm assuming it's the baby from Roger Rabbit. <laughs> what do you want, Casey? My expectations would be very, very low if a toddler asked me what I want. But if a Taco Bell cashier asks me what I want, oh, mama! Everything. One of everything. If some stranger on the street asks me what I want, I expect very little. But if Jeff Bezos asks me what I want, whoo, expect little. <laughs> Brutal whoever said it. Brutal. Oh, Derek Hanson, of course he did. (laughs) Now, though, but when Jesus Christ, the Son of God, asks you this question, what does it draw out of you, Christians or not? What does it draw out of you? What would you ask for? Think about it. Write it down in your little jern What would you write down? Would you write down a healing? Would you write down a certain person to be brought back from the dead? Would you write down a certain relationship you want or a career move or just plain I'm unhappy. Jesus, give me happiness. See, this leads me to my point for today. Whatever our answer was or is, or whatever you're writing down, does it line up to what Christ wants to give you? See, what's the more arresting question, Collective Church? Jesus asking, what do you want? Or Jesus asking, do you want what I want for you? What's the more arresting question? John chapter 13, our text for today, answers both. And gives us a vision of God and ourselves that if we embraced it, family, it would change our lives eternally. And it all orbits around feet. Feet. Ooh. If there are any, and I hope I say it right, podophobics in the room. Anybody know what podophobic is? That is a fear of feet and toes. If there's any podophobics in the room, now is the time to leave. Okay? This is a very real phobia. I'm not making fun of you. If that's anybody here, you do you, dude. I don't care, but I am an expert on photophobia, potophobia, whatever, because <laughs> I read a blog on it this week. Okay, so I'm an expert, and I thought I would share with you some very real warnings of what to not to do, what not to do around photos. Okay, just getting the ball rolling. This is what not to do around photos. <laughs> These are all real from psychologicalgenie.com. Y'all ready? Here it is. I bet you didn't expect this this morning. You're welcome. Do not, in any case, these are real, remove your socks or shoes around a podo, okay? We get that. Do not wave your feet in their face. He may take that offensive and, in an extreme case, turn aggressive or violent. Don't discuss feet, toes, or clippings with them. There goes my afternoon. And lastly, these are real. And lastly, don't eat with your feet as if they are hands. (laughs) As you do. The reason I bring up feet is because of obviously what we just read, but also the very famous episode of Christ Jesus washing the 12 disciples' feet days before his death. This is an extremely famous story that Christians are not all know about in Christ's Holy Week. And since we did this last year, where we're building up to Easter. We're going to do it again this time. And it only makes sense and seems wise to hit this very extremely famous case of John 13, where the disciples and where Jesus are sitting in a private upper room. They had just finished a delicious, important, symbolic Passover meal filled with good wine, roasted lamb, and, of course, bread, which just shows us that none of them, Jesus, none of them were gluten-free. They loved bread. And they're all reclining in a u-shape sorry da vinci da vinci's way off but they're all in a u-shape that's important for me to tell you because they reclined either on their stomachs hi, or they reclined on their backs why is that important because you're either you're eating around somebody's feet depending on which way you're sitting you're eating around them have you ever eaten with somebody's feet around you it's nappy it's gross i was gonna pick on my kids I better not do it. Moses, is my son's doing this. Oh, God, no, Dad. <laughs> my kids stink stinky feet. They just stink. I'm not going to say anything. That's it. That's all I'll say. I love you. Don't use your kids' to sermon illustrations. I'm sorry, son. But if you've ever eaten around somebody's feet, it's disgusting. But the feet of Jewish travelers in ancient Palestine, ooh, they would have been shod in sandals and thus fist, like, filthy from traveling on dirt roads. They would have been stepping in animals' feces. They would have been sweaty, meaty, hairy hobbit feet. These would have been rough feet. Feet so gross that washing them was so debasing that not even Jewish servants would wash feet. The the servants of the servants of the servants, that's who it was reserved for. It was so debasing and gross. But in a household without servants even, historians tell us that they had to wash their own feet. Basically, if a family of four walked into the house, the parents weren't helping out their little teeny five-year-old. They're like, you wash your ugly little feet. Like, you do it yourself. This is how gross parents wouldn't even do it to their own children, okay? Simply, this must be a step, a necessity, as important it is today as us brushing our teeth. It was that, it was that common. But, 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 pay attention. For this entire meal, this important meal, something is off like an elephant was placed in the upper room with these disciples because there was no courtesy foot washing. And who knows, its tension could have really slowly been growing in the disciples to like mammoth proportions. So again, for one of the most important meals in all of the Bible and human history, no one, no one did the courtesy. So they're back and forth and reclining, and their feet are filthy. No one did the courtesy, not Andrew, not Peter, not John, and certainly not Judas. It must have been like a wasp in their brain. And for what it's worth, it would do good for us to remember that only a short time before this very meal, that these disciples were arguing about who was the greater pastor, minister, servant, disciple. They were all saying, I am, I am, I'm greater, I'm greater. Showing us that they are all about their own dignity. They're all about their own honor or elevation. So then, if you're caught up with me, in this setting, nobody wanted to take the role A slave. So nobody did until verse 3. Read with me. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God, listen to this line. He had come from God and was going back to God, and here it is rose from supper. Jesus was the host, the apostles, the disciples were the guests. No host of a meal would certainly embarrass himself to performing the most vile of tasks. However, Jesus rose from supper. Verse 2, he laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Church, are you feeling this? Are we feeling this? This is the great condescension. It's as if every step has been indelibly burned into the author's memory. Are we noticing this? It's painstaking details all written down. As if John the author wants to put it on playback in his own mind, in our own minds, again and again and again and again in slow motion. Don't believe me. Look at this. There's this hush in this room, verse 5, and then Jesus pours water into a basin. Look at these details. And began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. I thought a visual could help for our imaginations. So we have this little picture. This is an 1800 painting by Ford Maddox Brown. The reason I just want to bring it up because I want you to notice the faces, some of the hidden faces. They're aggressive, they're confused, they're bothered. Notice Peter's face. Peter's, he's not into this. Peter's face, he's not into this. But I really wanted us to notice is Look at Christ's grip on Peter's ankle. Sorry, I'll move out of your way. It's hard to see. But if you notice it, or look it up later, Christ's grip on Peter's ankle, man, oh man, to me, there's such assurance in that grip. See, if you were Jesus, and you knew you only had days left to live, so imagine that, we have days left, what would you be doing? Would you be claiming the Iron Throne? that's for you tonight, whatever. Would you be claiming the Iron Throne? Would we be wielding authority over our detractors? Days left to live, calling down 10,000 angels, getting drunk on spirit wine, telling the disciples all the ways they let you down. Jesus chose uncomfortable love. And before both friend and foe, the same. This is why verse one is so striking. Let's read verse one again. Now that we have a little bit of a backstory to washing of the feet. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world into the Father. Look at this. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the end. This is freight train type of love. Those here who aren't Christians, and I guess those here who are who need a reminder, when we say, when you say Jesus loves you, this is what we mean. This is what we mean. So with your permission, what I'd like to do is just take a few moments to expand upon Christ's love and how it's expressed in two dynamic ways. But I want to highlight it using Peter's foot washing and using Judas's foot washing, okay? So verse 6. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And Peter said to him, you shall never, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus, you shall never do this. Which makes all of us go, Peter, Peter, Peter. This always happens to these two, right? Jesus is speaking metaphorically while Peter is taking it literally. Peter is like a junior hire. I taught junior high for one year. Global science is about as much as I could possibly take. Fifth graders to junior hires, let me tell you, they take everything literally. So I would walk into the class and be like, what's up, class? (laughs) The ceiling, Mr. Fritz. (laughs) And every time I look at him, I go, Jimmy, you're adopted. Or I'd say something very... <laughs> but in all fairness, Pete Pete always gets a bad rap. But we love it. We love it. Because after we do something stupid, Christians, we can always say, well, at least, at least I didn't do what Peter did. <laughs> right? But you can sense in this moment, Peter, like, like grabbing his arm. Like stopping the towel, and he's looking in the eyes of God and says, this is not right. It's not rightness is akin to telling a a bride and groom to stop cleaning up trash at their wedding reception. That's what it's like. Stop, what are you doing? What are you doing? Knock it off. We would all stop a bride and groom if they were doing that. What you are doing, you shouldn't be doing. Stop it. Peter's doing an intervention with Jesus. See, I wonder how many times we come across this in our lives. God, stop! This is not your ways. Is it too much speculation to take this further? As if Peter is saying, "I don't want a God who serves. I don't want a God who does this." And it's here, if I can, just for a moment, I want to make sure that we, collective church, unravel. I want us to unravel because God, God loves. Thus God serves. Hear me. Unravel at this. God wants to serve you. Hear that again. God wants to serve you. We must receive. But the struggle to receive is very real. Is it not? I highly doubt that's just true for me. What is it, friends, that makes it so challenging for the inability to receive? what is it? Is it self-imposed pressure to reciprocate? Is it fear of selfishness? No, no, no. I don't don't, know. You do that to somebody else. Is it letting go of control? Is it self-worth issues? Do you struggle to receive? It's interesting. I ask this question, what do you want from Jesus? But I wonder that even if we were given it, that many of us would actually even receive it. We are a culture that doesn't know how to receive good, non-transactional, stringless gifts. But can you blame Peter? Can you blame Peter? Many of you know I'm in a spot, my family's in a spot right now, much like this. Maybe you are too. Peter doesn't know what's going on, but Jesus is on the move. And Jesus basically forces Peter to what? Just practice trust. You have no idea what's going on. You will understand later, but in the moment... You're going to be untethered from certainty, from knowledge, or for details. And while Peter is just trying to serve Jesus, I'm just trying to serve you, Lord. Jesus says, stop it. No more. Let me serve you. Let me go first. Let me do this. Which speaks so piercingly into all of our uncertainties with life and with God himself. This is where the idea of receiving starts to unfold before us because to receive is on the basis of two things. Who am I receiving from? Meaning, receive him as he wants to be seen or known. Not what we think he is or what we'd like God to be, but who he is. See, basically our struggle with receiving comes down to two things. Number one, who am I receiving from? Do you know who he is? And then number two are do they have good intentions? Basically, do I trust Christ's goodness enough to receive freely? So it leads me to ask, are there any false truths you might be believing about God or His ways that are paralyzing you from receiving from Him today? Is there anything you're not receiving? Look at verse 20. This is at the end of the episode. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives this one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who I sent." This is God, is what he's saying, receive him. But, 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 if we don't receive, then look at this, verse eight. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, he's talking to Peter, you have no share with me. To decide to go, I don't want this, then you have no share with him. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, this is the total flip around. Oh, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except his for his feet, but is completely clean. This is a nod to baptism. Lorenzo was just discussing. It's, it's that importance of identifying immersion. Jesus goes on, and you are clean, but not, but not, but not every one of you. Verse 11, for he knew who was to betray him. That, is, that was why he said not all of you are clean. Friends, look at closely. This is where we transition to Judas. Here is a man, Judas, who is completely given to the devil. Earlier, the gospel records Jesus saying in John 6, Jesus answered him, did I not choose you, the 12, and yet one of you is a devil? Now, of course, again, he's talking about Judas, but I believe this is an upsetting moment. We should go, this feels out of place It's a nice dinner. Everybody's enjoying themselves. It's like when we have Thanksgiving and Uncle Larry says, let's talk about a border wall. Like it's that type of moment. Whoa, what? Or it's when you go over for Christmas and your mom says, have you found a man yet? It just kills the mood, right? So why mention anything here about the devil? Something very sweet was happening. Why, Jesus? Because, because, because the contrast is instructive. It's all about the contrast. The contrast drops this black curtain behind the scene, meaning it makes everything, the expression of love, stand out with glaring boldness. Does that make sense? That being we have demonic hatred with Judas, contrasted with the purest love of Jesus Christ. Judas is a hater. He loathes Jesus. Hates him. Who knows what he would do to him in a private room? We do not know he loathed Jesus. And with every miracle that passed by, and every time Jesus did a sermon, and every time Jesus embraced Peter, or they had a meal or conversation where Jesus didn't fulfill Judas's ambitions for greed, the more his hatred spread like an infection in his blood. So much so that many of you know that Judas betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. That's the equivalent of a few hundred bucks. Basically, that's What is that? That's a trip to Florida, right? That's an Xbox. That's a cheap laptop. So which is a good time for us to stop and ask that, is there anything we would betray our relationship with Jesus over? What Judas does, especially here for those who don't follow Jesus, what Judas Judas does is remove excuses or doubts in our hearts. I don't know how many times you've had the conversation, but I have with people who don't follow Jesus, and they always say, I would believe, and they don't always, but you know what I mean. Often they say, I would believe if I had experienced what they did. If I was there, I would believe. No, you wouldn't. No, we wouldn't. Jesus has the best seat in the house. Jesus kissed Jesus. Judas kissed Jesus, excuse me. Judas felt his healing hands, and then Judas betrayed him. Judas is an enemy of Christ, and yet his feet were tenderly washed. We do not understand this. Mm. all right. We do not understand this. We do not understand this. So to help mash it up so we can digest it, allow me to pose it like this, if I can for a moment. Bear with me. African-Americans washing the feet of a white supremacist. Family members washing the feet of the drunk driver who crashed into their loved ones. The mother of a molested child washing the feet of a molester. We do not understand this, this type of love, and yet this is Christ. The great Frederick Buechner Helps us get there. It's a chunky quote, but friends, if you stick with it, it's going to rock you. Beekner says The love for equals is a human thing, a friend for friend, a brother for brother. It is to love what is loving and lovely. The love for the less fortunate is a beautiful thing. The love for those who suffer, for those who are poor, the sick, the failures, the unlovely. This is compassion and it touches the heart of the world. Let's keep going. The more for the, excuse me, the love for the more fortunate is a rare thing. To love those who succeed where we fail. To rejoice with, without envy with, with those who rejoice. The love for the poor, uh, excuse me, the love of the poor for the rich. The black man for the white man. The world is always bewildered by its saints. And here's our point. And then there is the love for the enemy. Love for the one who does not love you but mocks, threatens, inflicts pain. The tortured's love for the torturer. This is God's love. This is God's love, and it conquers the world. God's love goes from heaven to earth, from seat to the floor, from heaven and humility to us, to scrape the dirt and dung off of us. I hope we're getting this. Jesus attaches himself to our messiest parts. Whatever that time would have been the grossest thing about somebody, Jesus says, that's where I'm going to be. Externally, it was the grossest thing it could have been. He goes, that's where I'm going to be. That's what I'm going to attach myself to. Now, here's possibly the best news you will ever hear that I've ever heard is that Jesus is still cleaning his enemies, washing the feet of his betrayers, loving his haters, loving his haters. Do you want this? Can you receive this? What Peter could not understand was how this symbolic washing would come fully in the cross. Where our souls are scrubbed of dung and dirt and presented as rubies. What Peter basically could not understand was everything about this scene. Everything. Essentially, is it too much to state state that the life of Christ is contained symbolically in a single foot washing? For those who know the life of Jesus, allow me to try to present it. As it portrays Jesus rising up from the heavenly, intimate union with the Father, as he laid aside his garments of glory, wrapped himself in the towel of human nature, and like water to clean others, poured out his blood to scrub us. So, what I'm telling you, what you may already know or may not know, is that you are dirty, and that I am dirty. You are filthy, I am filthy. If you not follow Jesus, you are also dirty. And you know you are. I have impure thoughts. I snap at my kids. I cuss in anger on the 405. I'm a glutton. I'm fearful. I have abandonment issues. I'm a complete object of wrath. But what I do know that maybe some here don't know is that I can't, can't, can't clean myself up. I can't wash myself clean enough to change my attitude or my heart or my nature or my life. You need, I need Jesus. Jesus. I speak truth and hopefully you receive it because I believe and I can vouch for the promises that it's the truth that will set us free. Now, let's move on. The question is posed to you and to me is, do you understand what Peter couldn't understand? Look at verse 12. Do you understand what Peter could not? When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments... And resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you were right, for so I am. Basically, just said, I am your authority, and I am your mentor. I am your standard, and I am example. If I then, your standard and example, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So up to this point, church, it's been love that has been stated. It's love that has been spurned or shown. But now finally, and hear me so closely, it is love that is summoned. We, you, are to love like this. Hopefully you notice our two points for today are receive this love, and then now it's give this love. The very love that we are to receive. It is a species of love that reaches down into the lowest place, that does the dirtiest jobs, and it takes care of our simplest needs, most sacrificially and selflessly, selflessly. excuse me. If this is our love, Christians, if this is the type of love that we have, then there will never be a time where we look at anything and say, that is beneath me. No act of service is beneath me. Praying for her is not beneath me. Serving him is not beneath me. Now, if I could be a little bit more, um, probably irreverent to this, but some Christians take this command way too literally and sometimes perform foot washing ceremonies. Has anybody been a part of a foot washing ceremony? You have? Okay. So some people actually do it. I recently was gifted a massage and the lady scrubbed my feet and it was the most awkward 20 minutes of my entire life. She just kept making eye contact with me, and I just wanted to, like, look away. I kept asking her. I was so uncomfortable. I kept asking her, so what do you do for a living? I was like, oh, yeah, this. For I, I was so uncomfortable. Foot washing is very uncomfortable. Maybe yours was cool if you've actually done it before. I've never done it. I've been at weddings where they've done it, and it took, like, 30 minutes, and it was very uncomfortable. Maybe yours was cool, okay? My point is I'm not asking Jesus isn't asking to go out and actually wash feet. Again, the charge here is to never regard a task too menial or degrading to undertake. So what is it for you? What service to you is far too low of a task? Is there anything in your heart? Is it changing diapers in our nursery? Is it setting up chairs? I'm a lawyer. I ain't gonna set up chairs. No offense to lawyers. I don't know <laughs> We want this church to be blessed, do we not? Do we want this church to be blessed? That only comes by when we start asking a single transforming question, which is what can I do to serve you because I've been served by him. Here's the blessing. Look at verse 17. If you know these things, blessed, blessed, blessed are you if you what? Do them. You notice the verb change in the sentence? If you know, blessed are you when you do It's not enough to know Jesus. Jesus, Judas knew Jesus. That knowing must influence our lives and our decisions and our destinations and our desires. Friends, trust me, I know the lesson before us is ridiculously simple, but it's important and it can never be overrated. What can I do to serve you? What can I do to serve you? What can I do to serve you? Is basically, will you allow me to love you? Literally, just think about, it. what if we ask this question to people in our daily lives? Again, it's trite. It almost feels trite. It's simple. But what if we started asking this question? Spouses, what if you started asking your other this every morning? What if we started asking our parents, our children, our roommates, our boss? First John 3 says, love not only, excuse me, not in word only, but in deed. It is what you do that manifests Love not what emotion we contain. So for two minutes, with your permission, if I can just get extremely practical about the simplest form of service, the lowest hanging fruit on a tree practically to serve one another here at Collective is by helping on Sundays twice a month. That's like two hours. And those who make that sacrifice, allow me to speak on behalf of the pastors. Thank you. Thank you, thank you thank you. You are a gift in living out exactly what John 13 inspires. The reason that we push so hard service or a uh, type of service that is engaged is because we want to serve out of what we've been given or how we've been served. We want to make sure that the point is not us but Jesus. But now a word for those who don't do the lowest hanging fruit. For those who have not yet decided to engage in this way. I'm just talking about the lowest hanging fruit. There's other ways to serve here, but if we can't do the lowest common denominator, so those who don't or those who refuse or those who don't make time, allow these words, these scriptures to stir you up because it's the blessing of humble service upon which our love for one another is most proven. To say it a little bit more confrontationally, love hearing or telling people you love one another will come in, are you serving them? Francis Schaeffer, probably one of my all-time favorite theologians, he probably is my favorite theologian of all time, years ago wrote an article, a very large article on actionable love, and he picked up on the profundity of what Jesus was saying. I think you'll find it disruptive. This is what Schaeffer says. He goes, love is the mark that Jesus gives to label a Christian, not just in one Era or in one locality, but at all times and places until Jesus returns. Now, that doesn't seem like much. Cool, we get it. That's a cool quote. But then we're kind of missing it. Do we see what he's saying? Schaefer, rightly, in my opinion, is basically telling us it's as if Jesus turns from you and I, Christians, to the world and says, On the basis of my authority, I give you a right that you may judge whether or not an individual is a Christian on the basis of how they love one another. Judge them if they do not love one another. Understand if they understand me serving them by how they serve one another. I'm not seeing them doing anything. It's remarkable because here's what would happen for those here who don't. But call this their church, but don't serve as John 13 beckons us. If you stepped into this type of love, even the lowest hanging fruit, and just started passing out coffee, that's the lowest hanging fruit. Even if we just started doing that, for you, for many of us, everything would change. Everything. And this is not only true for this church. This is true of any community. Everything would change. Because the good and loving example of Jesus Christ would begin to puncture your marriage, your home, your workplace, your school, and this church. Why? Because when the gospel breaks into an era, it always makes things new. Simply, it blesses. The gospel holds the public secret that love is the most powerful change agent, change agent on the planet. So today, let's end by ans- me, asking or at least answering again the question that Jesus gave us in the beginning. What do you want? What do you want? If you're a Christian, your deepest desires, your Holy Spirit-infused desires, your faithful desires are the desires of God. And those will trump lesser loves and lesser desires. My point, however you might have answered that question this morning, I hope now it's exploding with, Jesus, I want you to serve me. Jesus, I want you to wash me. I want you to cleanse me. I want you to do what you must so that I may do as you did. Amen? Let's pray.